Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Welcome to Gen C. This is so exciting. I am really not only happy here to have a conversation with you about what's happening this week, but more importantly, we have such a great guest this week, Avery. Netta Whitney is the head of marketing for Christie's. Christie's, for anyone who doesn't know, we're behind the $69 million Beeple sale that kind of kicked off the crypto digital art movement. But Christie's itself has been doing some amazing work in the innovation space, as well as identifying key artists who are playing. I think there's something really exciting about that we'll hear from Netta. But first, Avery, did you know that in Singapore, if you hold an NFT from the Wasi's collection, that you can book a room for 20% off at the Wasi's hotel, which has now been open? I love that Singapore is a very crypto forward nation state. You may or may not know this, but I actually lived in Singapore for several years. And I was recently back there for some work stuff. And they are such a thriving crypto community, NFT community building in Singapore. They're building a lot of crypto companies as well. And their government has a very sort of friendly policy towards a lot of this stuff. So I'm not shocked to hear that. And of course, we also know that tourism is a huge part of Singapore's focus of bringing awareness to their nation state. So combining two things Singapore loves. The Wasis, which is a collection I did not know about, but actually has a pretty robust community. They kind of look like these sort of cute duck-like creatures. And it was brought by the kind of meme account Inverse Bra. It's one of his collections or their collections. And there's so much sort of passion around it that, yeah, they're doing a six-month pop-up hotel where the NFT gets you a discount on rooms, 20% off rooms, 69% off coffee and drinks. But what I sort of liked about this was just the thought process around if you have 10,000 loyal fans, could you create an opportunity to have them experience something in real life? You don't have to buy a hotel. You don't have to build a hotel. You can just skin a hotel for six months. What it feels like they did, and I think is an interesting model because your capital investment is much lower. And whether you hold the Wasis or not, if you go on all the hotel links, you'll still see it show up and you can still book the hotel room at their hotel, whether you know what you're stepping into. So I just thought it was like a nice way of thinking about connection for a smaller audience. 
but then also is an exposure point for a wider audience. Yeah. And actually what I love about that is this idea of like, it's an example of interoperable loyalty. This is something that we've seen in certain cases already. And we've talked a lot about, but I'm such a huge fan of NFT holders getting discounts and perks and access across different ecosystems. And I think it's a perfect illustration of that. Absolutely. More to come, I think, in that world. All right. Story number two, UEFN, Unreal Engine Fortnite, blew my mind over the last couple of days. I went into a really deep rabbit hole with it this past weekend. For anyone who doesn't know, Fortnite is a very popular gaming system, but Fortnite really has built a universe around the Fortnite ecosystem. What they now have is called Unreal Engine Fortnite, which basically allows a lot of the game engine tools for building worlds. It allows creators to build worlds inside the Fortnite game. So the idea being that you can literally build another game inside their game and let people play it, and there's a rev share with the creator. What I thought was really interesting about this from the perspective of the NFT ecosystem and the digital asset ecosystem was the idea that you could, from everything from someone recreated one of Grant Riven Yun's NFTs, he's an architectural designer, very popular NFT artist, someone rebuilt one of his worlds, but also with a platform like Mona, the Monaverse, which is a kind of his own sort of metaverse play, you could mint your world and then port that whole world that you just minted from Mona into Fortnite and let people play there. So it just felt like we're starting to see all these interesting tracks of where people can start to see Web3 gaming and Web3 experiences come to life in places that already have millions of people. Do you have any thoughts on it? Fortnite's in this interesting place of going from a massively successful game, arguably one of the most successful games ever, to becoming this platform. We actually at Vayner use many different parts of the Epic Games ecosystem. And I think what's happening now with Unreal Engine is going to be a massive enabler. I think what we're hearing from consumers is they all want to be the main character of their own internet experience. And this is just another manifestation of that. We're doing some sort of like dabbling in this world. And I think it's also bringing a lot of production teams sort of into some of these Web3 conversations. And you know, my take on this, Sam, I think it's more similar than it is different. So I am really excited to see what this unlocks and some of the use cases we see sort of coming from the original Fortnite community, which has now grown to sort of this Fortnite platform. And I think this proves out your thesis that Web3 is immersive experience, is the future of connected stories and experiences. And it proves out. It's an evolving, like, you know, it's every day we take a step. It gets us closer to. Yeah. When we think of MetaMask coming into Unity, when we think of UEFN allowing for sort of tokenized worlds to be ported into a game engine, I think these are the things that, as you guys are talking about this, it feels like it brings that one step closer to a reality. Agreed. And then the final thing, just as we're closing up before our guests, is it was sort of made official Gucci, yet again, is in the metaverse. This time they have partnered with the other side, which is Yuga Labs, the new game that they're building out. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. You know, Gucci seems to be just having this steady drumbeat of always doing things around Web3. They seem to be probably the most consistent luxury brand in the space. Any thoughts on Gucci going into other side? I definitely saw Gucci going into other side. I think other side is the entire Web3 community is so excited and really rooting for the other side to work, right? We just compared this to Fortnite. The total number of users concurrently in the other side second trip was, I think, around 7,000. You compare that to the hundreds of millions of people who are using Fortnite on a regular basis, the numbers are just vastly different. And I love that Gucci has such a cultural connection with the native Web3 audience. I think this has done really well for them with their initial forays into the world of Web3. Nice little drumbeat. I don't think it's a surprising collaboration because they've already done so much in this space. It kind of makes sense that of course they're there. 
So I don't think it was necessarily like a PR sensation, but it's a nice little drum beat for their overall strategy. Absolutely. We'll keep our eyes on what Gucci is doing. And with that, we'll take a break. After the break, Netta Whitney, head of marketing, SVP of Christie's, to talk all things crypto art, crypto art, whether she believes in that or not, and talking about the tokenization of culture, I think is really kind of the way I want to couch that. Really looking forward to talking with Netta after the break. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code GENC to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. Netta, thank you so much for being with us today on Generation C. You're a guest that I've been wanting to have on since we launched this podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. My pleasure. Excited to speak with you guys. Tell me a little bit about you, how you got into the marketing world, how you got into the art world, and most recently, how you got into your role leading marketing at Christie's as the SVP and head of all things marketing. I've loved marketing for a really long time. And I started my marketing journey like right out of college. I thought for about 20 seconds, I was going to be in law. And I worked at a corporate finance law firm and quickly realized that was not the journey that my life was going to take. And then got into marketing. And I spent 20 years working agency side at agencies in New York, San Francisco, Paris, and London, all different kinds of agencies. I worked in luxury and fashion PR. I worked in multicultural marketing. I worked at branding agencies like Interbrand. And then I spent the last 10 years of my career at digital first agencies like RGA and Huge, really honing that kind of 360 user first craft. And it was amazing. And I got to work on so many cool clients. I got to work on everything from the Tiffany and the Gucci's of the world to Planned Parenthood and Uber and Amazon and ESPN and Verizon. And it was some of the most exciting work that I've done in my career. But while I loved being agency side, and I feel like you're always surrounded by such smart, amazing people that constantly keep you on your toes, it's always like you're this SWAT team that parachutes in and deals with this mega hard problem and then delivers a solution and kind of never sees the work again, especially as agencies go more of a project to project model versus an agency a record model, which is, you know, in the past five years, at least certainly the trend. And I was really hungering to own something top to tail to really take a brand and be responsible for that brand's journey in the world, good, bad, and ugly, to put campaigns out in the world, to learn from them, to iterate from them, to grow the brand in different directions with different audiences. And I knew that I wanted to go client side and do that. And I also knew that I'm a very particular person with particular tastes. And so in order to wake up every morning and be super excited about the journey ahead of me, it needed to be a brand where I could get excited about that brand every single day. And anyone who knows me knows that there is a very small set of brands that would fit that bill. And I am a person who loves luxury. I'm a person who loves fashion. I like shiny things. And when Christie's called, it seemed like a pretty clear fit. Not a clear fit because I was an art person, 
but a clear fit because they sold things that I was like, this is so cool. Like who's not going to wake up and be excited to market a Picasso or a dinosaur or Shakespeare's first folio or the largest diamond in the world. It's just a gift every time we land an object. And each one of those objects has an amazing story behind it. And marketers are, if nothing else, storytellers. And that's what we're passionate about in our craft. So that was really exciting. And then it was 2021. And we were, we probably are still, but I like to say we're hoping that I'm manifesting the end of COVID somehow. In COVID, and we were taking this brand that was a very IRL brand where people came into auction rooms to raise a paddle and bid on a piece of artwork, where people came into galleries to experience the view of these million-dollar objects in person, where the experience was really such a large percentage of the brand DNA. And we had to quickly pivot and translate that experience into a digital manifestation. And as a marketer, that is an incredible challenge. And it's super exciting to figure out how do you translate that in a way where the aesthetic isn't lost, where the brand DNA isn't lost, where people who may not be sophisticated digital first users feel like this is something that they can still participate in, where it doesn't feel like it's a blocker now to their experience, where you are creating digital as an additive component to the experience. And as we transition out of COVID, where that entire experience continues to optimize and iterate for the best. And that was also a gift. So I was like, check, check, check. This has all these amazing pieces that I'm just so excited to participate in. And I took the role at Christie's. And already on paper, I was like, this is really exciting. A lot of big challenges. And then lo and behold, three months in, we sold an NFT. And it was not, in fact, our first NFT. Everyone says, you sold your first NFT with people. We did not sell our first NFT with people. Our first NFT was a few months before with an artist named Robert Alice. But we sold what felt like the NFT heard around the world with people. It sold for $69.3 million. If anyone at Christie's tells you that they had that number on the dartboard, they are lying. They did not. We all had high hopes, but I don't think any of us had hopes quite so high. We all really wanted to make this a moment, but we didn't know how big the moment was going to be. And then NFTs took off and gave me yet another opportunity and challenge to sink my teeth into. Wow. What an incredible career in marketing. The magic of an agency is so real. I'm actually at our headquarters in Hudson Yards today and like everybody's buzzing. There's just no place like an agency where anything is possible. Any idea can happen. Anything can turn on a dime. And I've always really liked you. And I bet it's because there's that agency vibe. (laughs) But I want to you know, unpack something that I think our listeners will be curious about. You mentioned you sell everything from dinosaurs to Picassos to NFTs. How does Christie's business model work? And what's your sort of role in helping them market all of the different incredible things that Christie sells? Because I'm always shocked at just the variety and diversity and depth of the catalog and how the business works. 
I think telegraphically, people think Christie's equals art auction house, right? You think of those big moments when we sold the Salvador Mundi for over $400 million, or just the big Monets and paintings on the wall. But we have a huge depth and breadth of items. It's kind of the business is broken up into what we call clusters. So arguably the largest and most well-known cluster is our 20th and 21st century art. So that's everything from, you know, Warhol, Basquiat, Cecily Brown, Frankenthaler, to Monet, Manet, Picasso, all these artists that you see in textbooks, right? Van Gogh, everyone else. And that is a huge piece of what we do. We also have a big cluster called Asian art, and that is Chinese art, Japanese art, Korean art, Southeast Asian art, Islamic art. That is, we just ended our Asian week, which is a huge banner week for us here where we sell everything from Asian antiquities. We sell Buddhas, we sell Jade, we sell a lot of beautiful items. We have luxury as a cluster and within luxury falls rare wines and spirits. You have sneakers, you have handbags, you have huge magnificent jewels, you have costume jewelry like Van Cleef and Arpels that's vintage. Sometimes you have really cool skate decks designed by different artists through different periods. We've sold Supreme pinball machines before. We've sold motorcycles that are designed by artists. We've sold Virgil Abloh sneakers. So that's our luxury cluster. And then we have a cluster called Classics. And Classics is a bit more broad. It holds everything from old master paintings to Iconic, which could be a collection like Andre Leon Talley's collection that we sold last season. It could be something like a collection of guitars. We sold Nile Rogers' guitar collection last year. It could be meteorites. We just closed our meteorite sale where we were literally selling pieces of the moon and asteroids. It could be our science objects, so things like dinosaur bones. It could be our rare books and manuscripts. So it's really broad. And then sometimes things will come to us that don't necessarily fit in a category, but we're like, yeah, we got to sell that and we'll make a category for that. And I think, Avery, to the start of your question around NFTs, that's what happened with NFTs. So there was a movement swelling in the digital art community and we had connections in that community and we could sense it and we knew that there was a lot of art being created that there was a huge community of very devoted collectors and very devoted creators. And if nothing else, Christie's role in the art space is as a platform. We don't make anything. We're a service. We help folks consign their pieces, and then we help find buyers for those pieces, and we sell those pieces. And our true secret sauce is in the specialists that know what value to attribute to pieces because they have been passionate students of art and object history their entire lives. And when it comes to my team, it's the storytelling and how we tell those stories around the art and object. So how we make sure that you know that when we sold the collection of Paul Allen last year for $1.6 billion, that his collecting vision was not just I'm buying up expensive art, but was really a collecting journey based on the way he saw the world, whether it be 
around portraiture or landscape or his love of numbers or his love of nature and science and his dedication to those subject matters. So those are the stories that we tell in marketing to help people understand why these paintings have value beyond the value that we place on them from an art historic perspective. You guys curate and say, you know, you work with a collector, you work with an artist, you work with a collection, and you basically say, we think there's a market for this. You guys have an unbelievable database of people who buy culture. Yes. Right. And who want to collect the world's artifacts. And then you sell them at a price and you guys do take a percentage on top of that price for the relationship, for the curation, for all the marketing, all the stuff that you guys do to make that happen. And because I do think that, and I think we should talk about it maybe in a little bit, just, you know, there is this assumption, I think, within the auction houses that, oh, we don't need you because we can sell an open sea. when the fact is the service you guys provide is a very different service than one gets when they're doing artists directly to a consumer. So I want to just want to make sure that we address the fact that, and it's okay that that's actually the model. That's been the model for a very long time now. Yeah. And I think there's two pieces to that puzzle. I think the first piece is we sell the most rare and covetable art and object in the world. That's always been our business model is finding those objects and creating a platform for those objects and helping the buyers of those objects procure them, right? And that's the space we're always going to play in, whether that be NFTs or anything else. So when you see an NFT in our evening sales, we sold one from Hobbs earlier this year. We sold a Beeple earlier this year. It's going to be something that sells for, you know, 100,000 plus typically. It's going to be one of those really iconic moments. But we made a really strategic decision around Web3 and NFTs at the end of last year because they're a little bit different. Those are our most high value items. We do have a Web3 presence called Christie's 3.0, which we developed. We were the first auction house to go on chain at the end of last year, which we developed specifically to be able to sell things that were not at the $100,000 level, but maybe at the thousands of dollar level, still highly tightly curated. We're not doing hundreds of NFTs a day or an hour like an open sea. We probably have a sale a quarter or a month at the maximum, but we wanted to make it a little bit more accessible to give artists that platform through Christie's. So I think that is one way that we really shifted our model to match the NFT model to make it a bit more accessible for NFT artists. One of the things that I really appreciate, and I've been buying art at auction end with art houses since I started my first company when I was 26 years old, because I just said, better than me spending it on dinner or spending it on clothing, I would rather have something that has the opportunity to look beautiful, stay in my home, but I've always been a collector by trade. The curation to me is such the key because I don't think people understand what it's like to go to an auction. It's the experience itself is almost worth, like it jazzes you up. You feel like you're surrounded by a, not a moment, but a true movement of people who are looking collectively to say, these things are socially valuable to us and they need to exist in the world and they need to be kept precious, you know, and not just put anywhere, which I think is also a really special role that you guys play. I love that you say that, Sam, because there's a difference between buying and amassing things and collecting things. And it's a nuance, but it's a really important nuance. I think there is commoditized luxury, 
there is commoditized art and object. And then, you know, when NFTs became a thing, a lot of people started talking about one of ones. But Christie's has been doing one of ones for 256 years. And there is something really, really special in buying a piece that has a history and a provenance and has been owned before and has been a part of someone's story. And you're investing in that story, that journey, that artist's journey. You're kind of caretaking something for the next generation versus buying something that the minute you walk out the door, it depreciates in value. And you're like, well, I'll put it up on the wall until I kind of get tired of it. And when I do, I'll be like, it's okay. Amortized over a couple of years, it's paid for itself and I'll toss it out and curb it. You know, I think there's something really special about this mindset of, I'm taking care of this for, you know, my kids or until I decide to sell it at a sale and let someone else take care of it because my tastes have changed or grown or evolved or it's just a different mindset. And I do think we are seeing that mindset start to be adopted by younger and younger generations that really see the value in having pieces, whether they're on the wall or on your body or in your home or wherever they may live that say more about yourself than I bought the same thing everyone else did because an ad told me it was cool. No, I love that. I want to talk a little bit about crypto art. The elements of this sort of crypto art movement, what are you seeing that that is and why should people pay attention to it? So I think first, let's pause on the word crypto art. I think one of the disservices that was done potentially when we sold the people was that every single term that was talked about in that moment in time got jumbled into a big ball and is used interchangeably. Crypto, NFT, blockchain, digital, you know, non-fungible, they're all one big interchangeable word and they're not actually the same thing. So I personally The word crypto art makes me itchy. I think there's digital art, there's generative art, there's art created with pixels. But I think crypto is a financial term. It is a way that you invest money or purchase things. You don't make or paint things with crypto, in my personal opinion. I've been on so many panels and in so many discussions where I have to tell people, NFTs aren't all art. NFTs can be a lot of different things. Like I can't wait to NFT my COVID vaccination card and my marriage certificate and my social security card and everything that's in that drawer of papers that I constantly rifle through and hope it's still sitting in there. Because if it's not, I have to like go to a bureau somewhere downtown and stand in line. Like those are all things that can live on the blockchain and be NFT'd. And they're certainly not art. And so I think the conflation of these terms is a little bit what happened because it all sprawled so quickly. But I think back to your question about art, there's a lot of different ways that this art is manifesting itself, whether it's via a creator expressing themselves with a palette that involves pixels or via some of the generative art forms where people are using AI to create art, you know, the chromies, the squiggles, the other things that have been very 
kind of successful in their own right. Again, we sold Hobbs Fidenza, that was generative art earlier this year. It sold for 358,000 pounds in London. Those are kind of the different movements I see with it. There's the glitch art movement. There's a lot of different movements within. It sounds like what you're really saying is if it's video on screen, if it's animation, if it's 3D rendered, if it's a pixel or a painting or a portrait or a photo that's on chain, all of these are art forms in themselves that don't require anything crypto about them other than they happen to be on the blockchain. But the blockchain is just really a medium for provenance and sort of originality as opposed to, you know, when we say crypto art, and I understand people want to say it sometimes because they like to feel like they're part of the crypto art club, but that really it's the, every one of the art forms within the NFT side of art, because I hear you, is an art form that exists independent of the blockchain still. That's right. Much more eloquently said. <laughs> you mentioned AI. And, you know, I think we've seen the exponential progress of AI in the context of sort of visual and artistry. Just a few days ago, people thought that the Pope in a puffer was a real photo. We, of course, know now that this was done through Midjourney, which is an AI tool for visualization that has incredible photorealistic capabilities. So Netta, as someone who spends all day, every day thinking about new formats of valuable collectibles, What's your take on what you're seeing in this world of AI? And could you ever see a future where Christie's is doing a special collection that's by Midjourney or by OpenAI or by Dolly too? Like, do you see that as a potential? I mean, listen, I fall down those rabbit holes daily. I think it's so cool what people are able to do with AI. I think it's fun. It's creative. I'm not an incredibly artistic person. My art is my words and my art is probably my fashion canvas. But it's giving those of us who didn't have that artistic canvas a canvas, which is really exciting. I do think, though, there are some murky waters around IP and how these images are coming together, the scraping of the internet for all images without anyone's consent to what images the tool is using to learn and train does give me pause. And especially in a space where we work so hard at Christie's to ensure the provenance of our pieces and to attribute every piece to the original artist. So I love what it's doing and I think it's super creative, but until we can get through the hoops of how do we make sure anyone whose art is used in that way is fully aware and fully consents to it, I think there's going to be some major hurdles. My premise is that the next big moment that's going to bring a lot of people and a lot of attention into the NFT world is going to be Web3 Gaming. And I could see, and we saw this already a little bit within Fortnite and some other gamings, where some people's skins became very valuable because of what those players were doing. Is there a future where you guys are selling a character who's the most accomplished character in whether it's Yuga Labs, Dookie Dash, or it's the next Red Dead Redemption, like, do you see that as an opportunity in the future? I see that as a very edge case opportunity for Christie's. Listen, I think we do a lot digitally. We've got VR, we've got AR, you know, we've got NFTs. I think there are probably a lot of brands that are better suited towards that use case than Christie's is. I'm not saying no, but I don't see it as an immediate use case for us. But I do see it, as you stated, Sam, as the next frontier 
for Web3. I think we've seen in certainly the past couple of months a shedding of skin around the brands, the platforms, the places that folks really think placing their bets on NFTs were the right move, whether it was Disney or Instagram or, you know, Gucci doubling down with Robert Trifus's role. You know, I think a lot of places are starting to really think like, is this the future I thought it was going to be? And how am I going to be smart and strategic about it? I have always thought gaming was a direct use case because the behavior is there. And brands that have ventured in there have been pretty successful out the gate with it. So I think there's definitely a direct path into Web3 and NFTs adoption in gaming. I just don't know that it's the direct path for the Christie's brand. Yeah, well, thank you for that sort of candorous response. I think it's something that a lot of listeners are probably curious about thinking about. I know constantly at Vayner, we're always looking to adapt what's working now, what's working today, what's working tomorrow, because we all know what worked yesterday won't work tomorrow. So what do you think is sort of most interesting as you consider the future and evolution of sort of blockchain-based art? Like, What are the things that are really catching your eye? What are the rabbit holes you're going down? I would say for me personally, because I've spent 22 and a half years in marketing and two and a half years in the art world. So I still, when I think about things, I think about things as a marketer first. So I'm going to take your question, Avery, and I'm going to actually answer it about what in the NFT space excites me most as a marketer. And the thing that excites me most about NFTs as a marketer is the loyalty play around NFTs. I think what Starbucks is doing, what Nike is doing, what brands are starting to do in thinking about how can you create meaningful one-to-one relationships with clients and consumers in their wallets via an NFT? How can you A-B test offers via an NFT? How can you create tiered structures via an NFT with loyalty programs? That to me feels like the next big application of it. I think the art piece is really mercurial. I think like anything in the art world, one day Warhol sells well, one day Warhol doesn't sell well. One day Christopher Woolmarket is up, one day Christopher Woolmarket is down. I think that's a little bit more temperamental and based on tastes that can't be predicted. I think what we can predict as marketers is user behaviors that are meaningful. And I remember, you know, over the past two years, I've had marketers from all walks of life call me and say, hey, you guys at Christie's are doing NFTs. Should my brand do NFTs? And almost exclusively, my answer has been no. Because I don't think many brands have been thoughtful about, with the exception of the brands that have worked with Vayner, about how do I make this a value exchange with my client or consumer? I think a lot of brands are myopically focused on how do I make this a PR play? for my leadership team. And that's not a recipe for success. I think now there is a construct where you can make it a value exchange. And I think now there's at least a bit more awareness, thanks to some of the work you guys have done with things like, you know, Pepsi and Anheuser-Busch and other things, where people know a little bit enough about NFTs, where you can carrot them into an NFT program And then you can keep them there if it's a thoughtful program. And so I think more people are thinking about a roadmap rather than a moment, which is what makes for effective marketing strategy. 
So that's what I'm really excited about is seeing how this is going to be the next generation of CRM and loyalty versus just a flash and a plan marketing ploy. Web3 is not a PR play. It's just we're going to repeat that over and over. <laughs> over and over. <laughs> Everybody needs to hear it. You know, it's so funny. So you mentioned Warhol. I'm going to go somewhere with this. But, you know, in late 2021, so I've collected a lot of my life. I have a Warhol trial proof of one of his Kachina dolls. And I put it out to open Twitter. And I said, whoever wants to trade me a CryptoPunk for this, I'll do the deal today. No one took me up on it, which I thought was very interesting. And then today I woke up and saw an article that said that four Warhols were being tokenized. I think it was like Jane Holzer's collection or something like that. And that's the stuff that actually really worries me. The idea of here's an existing piece that exists in its medium. And now someone bought it and said, hey, we're going to fractionalize this into a thousand pieces. You get to own the upper left square. That's all, you know, magenta. And suddenly you've given yourself the opportunity to say, I own a Warhol, right? Yeah. Fractionalization is really tricksy for me. I think that's getting into art as an investment class versus art as the passion of collecting. And I think at Christie's, we're more the latter and less the former. Don't get me wrong. A lot of clients probably come to us because of the investment class piece of it, but we don't do fractional ownership here. And for me personally, I understand the value behind. I would rather own something from our first open sale, which is a sale of newer to market artists that, you know, you've got price points that start in the low thousands. I would rather own something from that collection that I own fully and put on my wall and love. And great if that artist matures and that appreciates in value, but either way, I love it and I own it fully than a magenta square. It doesn't hit the same for me. No, I agree. And I think the idea of small slivers becomes such a weird status play. Yeah. Oh, I have this little bit of this larger bit of this larger thing, as opposed to, I think, and I think your point is spot on, which is just go invest in artists that you love who are newer. There's a lot of amazing art out there. Like exactly. you could buy the next Warhol. And if they don't become the next Warhol, the only rule of thumb when buying art is buy what you love. If you love it and it's on your wall, you will always love it and it will always be on your wall. My final question for you is, you mentioned earlier, you're into wine, you're into real estate, you're into sneakers, you're into all of these things. Ivory and I talk a lot about the tokenization of real world assets. And so just wondering, you know, your thoughts on, and whether it's just for provenance, or do you see a future where Christie's puts up a rare bottle of wine, you know, from the 20s, and someone gets to buy it as an NFT, and then gets a chip to their house when they burn it? Is that something that feels like this is a step forward in the auction game? So in the last two years, anyone that could find an email address with Christie's associated with it sent us their proposition for an NFT. It was chaotic good, maybe, but it was certainly chaotic. And I think the thing that I struggled with the most is why are we tokenizing this thing? Because the automatic instinct was, I have a thing, let's NFT it and let's make all the money that's out there. It's the gold rush, right? But what most people don't realize is that there's not a Venn diagram of people interested in purchasing an NFT and every other object out in the world. And what we do at Christie's is we know the buyers and we specialize in 
understanding what people want. And we specialize in matching people with the things that they've coveted, et cetera. And so, you know, and we got it wrong a couple of times. Early on, we had these amazing early Andy Warhol Amiga computer drawings that we were like, well, duh, it's like the OG of digital art. Let's sell them and NFT them. And they didn't sell particularly well. And that was because there was not a Venn diagram of Andy Warhol art collectors and NFT collectors. Sam, maybe we were missing you in our CRM program. But this was in 2021, right after the Beeple sold, that audience hadn't yet been built. It might be a different case today, and it probably would be, right? But it hadn't yet been built. And over and over, people would come to us and be like, we've got some antiquities in Egypt, we've got a this, we've got a that, we've got you know, basketballs, we've got all manner of things. And it's, why don't you just sell the thing? What is the NFT adding to the thing? So my answer is, until there is a value behind it, like if there's a true need to establish provenance in a way where the NFT serves as a certificate of authenticity that lives in perpetuity on the blockchain, that makes total sense to me. But it's not a value add to a physical good in my mind, unless there is a value that you can ascribe to it. I love that. And I almost miss those emails. I used to get so many, Avery, I have a Picasso and can you NFT it? And then I think we could make millions and do a revenue split. Like those used to be every day. I haven't gotten one of those in weeks. So many Picassos floating around that none of us knew about, right? Like exactly. So many like long lost Picassos that were just (laughs) randomly ending up in my inbox. I wonder why none of them worked. Yeah. Those were the days. But you know, Netta, thank you for sharing those insights. And also what I love that you're kind of unearthing is Christie's understands the consumer and you understand what your consumers are looking for in what they're buying in an auction house. I think there's also this misperception that, you know, Christie's can sell this cold brew for $5,000 because, you know, it's Christie's. And certainly Christie's has this sort of magic effect, but it really comes from understanding what your buyers want and matching it to curating collections that sort of meet those needs and fostering those relationships. I love that, you know, over 256 years, because I think a lot of people who are deep in this Web3 scene, they constantly will refer to us bringing Web2 brands into Web3. And I constantly remind them that almost all of our clients have existed for centuries. And just like any other evolution in technology, this is one evolution, but brands need to be thoughtful in the way that they embrace emerging technology and integrate it into their core marketing strategies, not just you know trying to sell an NFT for NFT's sake. So I want to close on something that I think is interesting because Christie's was one of the first auction houses to take cryptocurrency. I believe you all take Ethereum. I want to give you also a shout out for your very well-designed Christie's 3.0 platform. I think it's beautiful. And I think it did a nice job of pulling sort of Web3 natives into your ecosystem of Christie's buyers, which at the end of the day is also your objective, right? Recruit new users into Christie's. So can you tell us a little bit about that decision? And is that some format of currency that you see a lot of people using? I'm so curious. Yeah, I mean, it was a big discussion, right? Because the fluctuation of currency is not nominal. And I know because I own a lot of it. (laughs) It's not nominal in the crypto space. But again, we need to understand what our clients want. And we made that decision based on a lot of careful review and ultimately what our clients want. What I will say is we are surprised by the adoption level. Meaning, 
We really did think that more clients would use that option than do. And I think it's probably because of the fluctuation level. You know, a sale can close and that price can change one direction or the other by the time you can pay for it. And that can be in anyone's favor. So I think, you know, even the most bullish person on Ethereum is like Ethereum ride or die. When it's the difference of tens of thousands of dollars, they're like, I'll just pay in fiat. I'm good. So I think we want to acknowledge and recognize that crypto is an important method of payment for a lot of our clients. But I don't think we're moving to an all crypto world anytime soon. Amazing. Now, thank you so much for spending time with us. This was insightful, interesting, super fun. Great to hear your backstory as well as what you guys were working with Christie's. Nobody can't think of this digital art movement on chain without thinking of what you guys really brought to life with the Beeple sale and all of the work you've done before and since that. So again, just thank you. You know, we'd love to check in at some point in the future because I know you guys are going to be doing a lot more. And just want to thank you again for your time. Anytime, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And everybody, please go check out the great work that Christie's continues to do in this space. And Netta personally, I mean, she talks about our collection, but I think her collection of shoes is really <laughs> a manifestation of true creativity. <laughs> we'll put the shoe link in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, Netta. Thank you. Avery, Netta is such a good guest for so many reasons. One, because I mean, talk about just like the fact that they are doing business with blockchain. They're doing business on blockchain and they also kicked off the hype around a segment of blockchain that so many of us are involved with, which is the digital art side of NFTs and her history. I didn't know how deep her pedigree went in the marketing world. What was your thoughts on that conversation? I actually didn't either. We sort of know each other socially and a little bit through the Christie's, some Vayner stuff over the past two years, but not surprised. Netta is a marketing powerhouse and I also think that her job sounds so fun, getting to market dinosaurs to (laughs) NFTs, like that's incredible. And I loved her very realistic take on sort of state of the market. And Christie's is a business, they'll sell anything, right? If there's a market, they'll sell it. And it was interesting to sort of unpack that and understand their sort of realization that crypto art or digital art was a thing, really capitalize on that, really catapult the market in a lot of ways. And they've really had a steady drumbeat since then as well. I also think that people don't recognize It took Warhol almost 30 years before he had a million dollar sale. And, you know, we have artists right now who come into NFTs who expect that within days, weeks, months, they're going to be crypto rich. And I think that it is really interesting to understand the fact that careers are built over time. And so just because you might not have sold your collection for 65 ETH and, you know, per item or sold out a 10,000 PFP collection, that doesn't mean your career is over. It just means just continue to do the work. And I think that when Christie's makes a choice of someone, whether it's Tyler Hobbs or Beeble, or it's Warhol or Kandinsky, the fact is they're looking at what's the story we're telling across an entire career. And I think that's something that artists sort of take something from. I always shudder a little bit when I see someone saying, oh, if you haven't bought this artist, you're going to miss out when it hits a million. And I'm like, I don't think Warhol ever created thinking that. Oh, I don't think so at all. With that said, I know we got to go. Avery, have a fantastic day. So nice seeing you. And I will see you next week. Listeners, thank you all for tuning in. As always, such a pleasure to hear from many of y'all on Twitter, on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. So feel free to keep hitting us up. Let us know who you want to hear from and keep listening to Gen C. Look around. 
can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.